So I, I don't know if we'll get all the way through all of the material that's, that's on the notes. It doesn't particularly matter if we don't get on to the, the resurrection because the, the main thing there, a little bit like the question we had about what about healing miracles, is what the New Atheists say is there is no evidence for the resurrection. And therefore they don't engage with the evidence for the resurrection. They don't engage with guys like Gary Habermas or William Lane Craig or N.T. Wright or Michael Lycona who have done the painstaking historical PhD work on establishing what is the evidence and what arguments might one make from it. They simply don't engage with the issue um, because they, I don't know, in culpable ignorance don't seem to think that there is any such thing. Um, But this is a passage um, of quotations from uh, various pages of Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, saying the typical kind of new atheist thing that they say about the Gospels. I'm not going to read out the whole thing for you, uh, but you can see where it starts with the typical, ever since the 19th century, it's like we, we had the 19th century historical criticism of the, of the Bible started, and then the last 150 years of New Testament studies didn't bother happening, as far as the new atheists are concerned, uh, because we had this breakthrough moment when we were all sceptical about the Bible, and they haven't really learnt that things have become progressively less sceptical as we go through from the first to the second to the third uh, quest for the historical Jesus and so on. Um, they'll talk about the copies being recopied through Chinese whisper generations, so uh, demeaning one of those links in the chain of, of testimony or sort of attack them. Um, the, the people who wrote it didn't know Jesus. Nobody knows who the four evangelists were. They almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Uh, what they wrote was not an honest attempt at history. Um, reputable Bible scholars don't regard the New Testament as reliable records of what actually happened. The only difference between the Da Vinci Code and the Gospels is that the Gospels are ancient fiction, while the Da Vinci Code is modern fiction. It's astounding stuff. But people who don't have a background to say any otherwise might well believe a respected media figure from Oxford University telling them this in a best-selling book. All of this, all of it is false. Um, Dawkins asserts the Gospels are pure fiction. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, Holy Writ is probably fiction of a grand sort to begin with. Alex Rosenberg states that the Bible is, quote, fictional. Um, as I could quote New Testament scholars today at the cutting edge ad, ad, ad infinitum practically, um, this is just not the, the current view. Denty uh, Wright says one of the great gains of New Testament scholarship in the last generation has been to re-establish that the canonical Gospels certainly were intended and certainly are to be read within the framework of ancient biographical writing. They are not works of fiction. They are at least intending to tell us what happened. The Gospels are a type of Greco-Roman biography. Um, Richard uh, Burridge, uh, I know Richard Burridge, I I sit on a trustees panel uh, with him for a a charity, and uh, he wrote uh, the book on this subject, What Are the Gospels? A Comparison of Greco-Roman Biography. It's now into a second edition, and Burridge says the Gospels belong to the genre of Greco-Roman bios, a life of a historical person written within the lifetime of contemporaries. 
When were the Gospels written? And again, the New Atheists will say, you know, it's decades, hundreds of years later, they're really, really late. The four Gospels of our Bible had all been written by the end of the first century. Is the, the view in the Guild. Um, the rough consensus, as Williams seems to be sometime between AD 60 and AD 90, although both earlier and later dates have been proposed. So I put here a little chart. Here's some rather conservative sort of range of dates for the Gospels. Here is some rather liberal range of dates for the Gospels. Here in brackets is the specific dates that I would argue for purely on the basis of circumstantial evidence. Uh, That's all you can really do once you've bracketed between when Jesus died and the end of the first century, I think. But I think you can, you can mount some, some, some good arguments for going towards the, the earlier dates. But, hey, notice, the thing to notice here, the big take-home, is there is really very little difference in the datings between the conservative and liberal end of the, the historical guild on when the Gospels were written. And everybody agrees they were written in the first century. In the first century. What about the authors, the authorities, the sources of those Gospels? Again, they didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't know Jesus, etc., says Dawkins. Timothy Paul Jones puts this very carefully. He says, The best evidence that we possess suggests that the sources for the four Gospels were a tax collector named Matthew, Simon Peter's translator, Mark, the physician Luke, who knew Paul and travelled with Paul sometimes, and a fisherman named John. Mark Roberts. In recent years, many have come to believe that the first and fourth Gospels reflect the memory and the perspective of Jesus' own disciples. Now, again, Matthew and John may not have been the ones who finally put pen to papyrus. There are interesting discussions, for example, about whether John's Gospel in particular went through a number of editions that maybe John wrote what we could consider a first draft of the gospel and then John's disciples tidied it up and finally published it um, when John was very old or when he died towards the end of the first century. Um, There were interesting discussions there. Um, Actually, the discussions about when a gospel is finally published focusing on that too much doesn't take into account discussions about whether or not they went through multiple drafts or versions, for example. Matthew and John may not have been the ones who finally put pen to papyrus, but they, their memory, their authority stand behind the Gospels that bear their names. And in the other two cases, you've got people who were very close associates of major early apostolic church figures. Richard Bockham, I really recommend to you his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, it's a gem of a book uh, on this. Uh, he says that, uh, argues that the Gospels embody the testimony of eyewitnesses. Not, of course, without editing and interpretation by the, by the authors, but in a way that's substantially faithful to how the eyewitnesses themselves told it. And he, he goes into the literary signs within first century literary culture that you were quoting someone. And that, that's important because in New Testament Greek, there is no such thing as a quotation mark. You can't quote someone in New Testament Greek. So how do you indicate to your literary audience 
when you're doing that. And uh, Bookham looks at the signs and looks at the way in which, particularly when you have a named character that appears just within a particular story area, as it were, and particularly when that named character appears at the beginning and the end of a passage. It's like putting quotation marks by putting the name of the person at the beginning and the end of the passage that is based on their testimony. It's a way of saying, this story comes from so-and-so. And and Bochum goes into that in some detail uh, in his book. It's fascinating stuff. So here's a chart, and it's it's in your information. And I'll put this in a more visual form in a moment. Um, Thinking of... The New Testament authors compared with lots of other standard authors from ancient history. And we're looking at what are the dates of the events being reported. And of course those events can span a period of time. When was the report published in its final form? So what is the average lapse between the events happening historically and the final published report of it? What's the average lapse there at the end? So what's the lapse? Because it spans time. And then what's the average lapse in the last column at the end there? Now, of course, most Gospels scholars accept dates ranging from the 60s to the 90s. And I've said I would early argue for earlier dates. But it doesn't affect it that much. And I'll show you on some charts that it's easy to see that that difference doesn't affect this very much. So here's it in, in graphic form. The average gap between historical event and the written report... Plutarch might you consider a bit of an outlier because the average gap from the events he's talking about to when he's talking about them is uh, about 300 years. But, you know, back at the, uh, the other extreme, we have Pliny, the letters of Pliny, who is talking about practically contemporaneous events. And Thucydides. And then Mark and Xenophon and Polybius, and then Luke and Matthew and John, and then the histories of Tacitus and Herodotus and Suetonius and Josephus's Jewish War and the Antiquities. So you can see that in terms of, of that criteria, as it were, that measurement, the gap between the events and report, and remember we were talking about you want it to be as, as short as possible, historically speaking, comparing the New Testament Gospels to other standard works of ancient history, and I'm not data picking them just to, to make a point, I'm trying to pick the, the next best ones. You see, they fit in very comfortably by that criteria, such that if you wanted to say, I'm skeptical of the information in the Gospels because they were written too long after the events, which is exactly what people like Dawkins say, to be consistent, you would also have to say, and I don't trust anything that Josephus tells us. And I don't trust anything that Herodotus or Suetonius or Tacitus tells us. In other words, let's shut down the classics department at the university. (laughs) Now, for some reason, the new atheists aren't agitating for Oxford University to close down its classical history department. I wonder why. That's where the average lapse would be if you took the standard sort of liberal dating of the Gospels. They would all fall within that band there. So you can see that it really makes very little difference to Mark. Makes the most difference to. 
And of course, focusing again, focusing on the Gospels, not only can you over-focus on the final publication of the final form of the Gospel question at the expense of maybe there was a period of writing it over a number of years, incorporating new sources, um, polishing it over time, so that it, the Gospel actually gives us access to information that's earlier than the final publication date. It's like if, if you took one of my books on the table there and say, oh, it was published in 2013. So, but then you read the foreword and you notice the foreword was written in 2012. So a book that's published in 2013 is giving you access to information that was written in 2012 because it took a year for the publisher to publish the thing, you know, to get it out there and so on. But also then, what if I drew upon and quoted from and so on other sources that predate the publication date and my writing of it? And this is the general schema that the New Testament Guild thinks about in terms of sources that stand behind the New Testament Gospels. There's one called Q, uh, from the German word for source, which is sought to be information that both Matthew and Luke quote and incorporate into their Gospels. If you line Matthew and Luke up together, you see that there's information that's common to both of them um, that is not in the other Gospels. Matthew seems to have an additional source called M, funnily enough. Luke seems to have one, and it might be, that might mean several sources, but a source or more called L. And it's often thought that the, the passion story in Mark's Gospel, when you get through Mark's Gospel, you read, it's lots of very, bam, 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 this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, little nuggets, bam, 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 bam. And then you get to the passion narrative, and you suddenly have a long literary unit. Uh, and many scholars think that that is a source from the Jerusalem church that predates the publication of Matthew's gospel and what, what Mark's gospel and what he's done is combined the preaching stories of Peter that he was conveying and translating and so on for the church in Rome and he's combined those Petrine sources with this long passion narrative that predates him and he's combined those together and some scholars although fewer think that John perhaps had a sign source uh, about the particular miracles that he mentions. And you can also note, across reference these sources, with the New Testament letters. So Paul Barnett, who's a Christian ancient historian, points out that the Q texts are cited or echoed in letters of Paul written in the mid-50s AD. So um, particularly if you have later datings of the, of the, of the Gospels, you can show that at least bits of the material that ends up in those Gospels are quoted in New Testament letters, uh, which is interesting. And indeed, we can argue that at least elements of Mark's Gospel of Q, L and M existed within 20 years of the historical Jesus at most. So if we look at, the, again, another one of these charts of average gaps, this is now the average gap between um, the event and the report as it were, in the, in the publication of the Gospels, compared to these sources. But then this bar 
is showing us the gap between the events and report for gospel sources. So this is for the gospel publications. That bar is for the gospel sources that predate the gospel. So again, you can see it. If this is you know, John and, and Matthew and so on, the sources that he's drawing upon push it back earlier in history. So the gospels actually give us access to earlier source material. And then the, the final link in the, the four elements of the chain of testimony is that between the autographs, the, the writing down originally of the information, and what we can confidently reassemble today from the scraps of copies that we have. Um, what you generally tend to have is very early on, you have tiny little scraps of papyrus and things, and then later on you start getting um, whole books of the Bible, and then later on you get entire New Testaments, uh, simply because the further back in time you're going, the more time there's been for things to erode. So again, um, this, uh, the Gospels are here. So if you're looking for complete copies of New Testament of Gospels, of Gospel books, you're looking about 300 years after the autograph for, say, a complete copy of Matthew or whatever. If you're looking for early Gospel fragments, EGFs, I call them, um, like the John Ryland's papyrus fragment of, of John's Gospel and so on, you can push that back really quite early. The next best, and Homer, you know, the Odyssey, the Iliad, is the next best historical comparison from the ancient world. And that's a little, just a little bit later for entire copies. And then Pliny, Horace, and Tacitus, and Suetonius, and Plato, and blah, 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 all the way down to Aristophanes here. 1,500 years after the publication of Aristophanes' plays before you can get a complete copy of his play. And yet, you know, ancient historians will quite happily work with the works of Thucydides or Herodotus critically, using criteria and so on, but they're happy to use them. So again, clearly, if you wanted to use that gap between autograph and copy as a reason to be sceptical of New Testament information, to be consistent, you have to apply the same rule with devastating effects uh, on the classics department. When, when did, like, papyrus, when did that end when they quit writing on papyrus and wrote on other Oh, gosh. I, I, this is a question about when um, different types of, of writing materials were, were used, when they shifted from scrolls um, to papy papyrus and so on, and then they shifted on to, uh, say, writing on um, vellum, calfskin, uh, and things. And I'm afraid I just don't know the, the, the specifics of that. Um, <coughs> it is, of course, the early church were relatively poor, and um, although they were early adopters of the new technology of the book, because everything was in scrolls beforehand, and it was the Christians who sort of adopted and popularised the book idea. Uh, originally it was papyrus, and that's certainly a cheaper form of writing material than having to go through curing calfskins and so on to write on, on vellum, which you get for the sort of more sort of Latin uh, New Testament sort of... Um, compendiums that you'd have in the Vatican and so on. But uh, I don't know the specific dates, I'm afraid. Yeah. They have the, the oldest papyrus, the P52 and P90, is about 125, plus minus 25 years. 
which is the oldest fragments they find. And all the skin yeah. would come later. Yeah. Uh, so Sam Harris, he expresses a concern about the currently available text of the New Testament being evidenced by discrepant and fragmentary copies of copies of copies of ancient Greek manuscripts. He sort of pitches it as a, like a game of, you know, the game that's sometimes called telephone in America or Chinese whispers, where one person tells the next person in secret the information and that person tells the next person in secret the information. It's like, we've got the, the original autograph and then somebody copies it and then somebody else copies that and somebody else copies that, and all we have is, you know, 5% of what they copied, and 10% of what they said, and, and so on. And from that, we're trying to piece together what was originally said. That can't be reliable, can it? And he talks about the way in which the copies are discrepant. You think about it, though, there's something a little bit odd about that criticism, because in order for that we, us to notice discrepancies between copies of the Gospels you've got to have enough copies for there to be that overlap with one another to notice discrepancies and it's actually the huge number of New Testament manuscripts that are available that leads to a fact that sometimes people like Bart Ehrman will, will sort of quote will say you know, there's so many thousands and thousands of discrepancies between the New Testament manuscripts. How can you trust them? Um, well, there are only thousands, there, you know, there are more discrepancies than there are words in the New Testament. You think, oh, gosh. But that is a factor of the fact that we have so many New Testament documents available. And we have these documents available over a long period of time, yes, in bigger and bigger chunks, in different languages that are spreading out geographically from where the Gospels are first published. So, you know, it's, say it's, you know, Mark's published in Greek, and then someone makes a copy in Latin, and someone else makes a copy in Egyptian, and someone else makes a copy in Syriac. And then other people make copies of the Egyptian one, and other people make copies of the Syriac one, and other people. And we have these sort of branching, sort of evolutionary trees of common descent, if you like, but literary trees of descent. And we can compare what's said in that language, in that language, in that language, at this historical date, at that historical date, and so on, all these different ways of comparing them. And because we have such a massive amount of textual data on the one hand that means yes there's lots of differences most of which are, are, are things like sort of grammatical differences that don't actually affect the meaning of the words uh, and the sentences or spelling mistakes that are obvious uh, and so on but because we have such a massive amount of data we can be much more confident about the reconstruction of what the original autograph probably said in the terms of the New Testament than we can about the rest of ancient literature because this chart compares just the Greek manuscript evidence so ignore the Egyptian and the Syriac and the Latin and, and so on just the Greek manuscript evidence for the New Testament text with the total manuscript evidence for other ancient texts including the next closest which is again Homer, the Iliad in this occasion 
So Homer's Iliad, we have 1,074, last time I looked, copies, fragments of Homer's Iliad from which to reconstruct the autograph, as it were. For the New Testament, we have 5,700-odd copies and fragments from which to reconstruct the original. Now, yes, that means, of course, that means there's a lot more variation in that pile of papers than there's going to be in this pile of papers because it's a heck of a bigger pile of papers. But that also means we can be much more confident about reconstructing what's back here because we've got a lot more data to go on, you see. So, again, if Sam Harris is, is worried about this copying copies of copies of copies, if he applied the same worry to the rest of ancient history, <laughs> you know, Plato, seven, <laughs> Herodotus's work, eight, Tacitus's Ten fragments and copies, you know. <laughs> then again, you would just be in shtuk uh, about this. And folks, we're not going to close down the classics departments or the ancient history departments. Um, so this new, new atheist critique is just, it's just superficial and uninformed. <laughs> Open back to, back to you. Yeah. Uh, uh, this idea about the uh, original sources, like the Q. Yeah. Is this uh, controversial at all? Well, <laughs> is are things like talking about Q and the sources behind the, the, the Gospels controversial? Yes, in as much as we're talking about ancient history and practically everything there is, to a degree, controverted. You'll be find someone who, con who controverts it. It's controversial in as much as we don't have Q. It's a, it's a hypothetical source. So these, these source ideas are attempts to give best explanations for the data that we find in the Gospels when we read them side by side with each other and think about them also in, in terms of the historical development of them, the relationship between them and so on. Um, so they're, they're hypothetical but they're um, based on data, so they're sort of inferential arguments supporting the idea that they're drawing on these sources. A really good kid because uh, isn't it like you, you don't take what the authors are actually, say, actually saying at face value but you're saying that no, they instead of researching this themselves and, and giving their testimony, they're actually basing it on, on uh, like a common source uh, that's behind it. Uh, right, okay. that, that's an interesting question. It seems to me that a lot of people use this uh, theory of Q to mm. kind of uh, take away from the authority of the Gospels. Right, interesting. Does, does Q support or take away from the authority? Does it show that the Gospel writers who use that source aren't bothering to do their own research or aren't telling it from their perspective, or does it actually show? In other words, right. Led by, you know, um, superintended by the spirit. I mean, I think that's where it drives at. Mm. Mm. That's where the concern often is. Yeah, and I think that that idea of of the question of 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 how do you conceive of inspiration functioning uh, from a Christian theological point of view. Um, it's not the, the, the historical issues, but for theological issues. And certainly if you have 
a, a sort of, should we say, sort of Islamic view of divine dictation, kind of inspiration of one's religious document, where it is the prophet in direct communication with God who's sort of sitting there on his own, sort of going, okay, God, you know, tell me what to write. Right, I write this, you know, because that's what God says. And then that's, and so, you know, that's a sort of very Islamic kind of view. But in the New Testament, in the New Testament itself, if you look at the beginning of, of Luke's Gospel, and he starts out with a preface there talking about the historical methodology that he uses. And he does that preface in, in better, more, more higher Greek language than the rest of the, the Gospel. Because he wants to say to the educated reader, um, I know my historical methodology, I'm not a yokel, but I'm now going to communicate to the common man on the street. But I'm just letting you know that I've done an exhaustive study, I've looked at the sources, I've interviewed the witnesses, who were eyewitnesses from the first, etc. This is proper Greco-Roman bios history that I'm doing here. It's not a novel, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... Um, the New Testament itself tells us that the writers used sources, or at least Luke did, because he tells us that he did. So I don't think we should have any in-principle problem with the idea that other gospel writers used sources. Um, now, if two different gospel writers quote from the same source, you would not be able to say that that is multiple independent testimony, historically speaking because the information comes from the same source. But I would argue that doesn't... There is still a value in saying we do have a multiple witness that that source that they're quoting is reliable, because why do they bother quoting it? Well, because clearly within the Christian community, what they're quoting is respected as being reliable. And by quoting it, they are themselves endorsing it, because they're not quoting it as we do as modern academics for the purpose of critique and review <laughs> they're, they're quoting it to pass on that information um, probably because people recognise that this is a respected early source of information that's already kind of established in, 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 the, in the early church pre-written gospel communication of the story and the oral sources and may go back to particular known individuals and so on as Bochum, um, Richard Bochum. Um, argues so uh, I think when you have multiple testimony that is an indicator of historical worth even if it's not multiple independent testimony even if multiple independent testimony is on purely historical grounds as it were better um, I, think my, I have a question that's kind of related kind of similar to that but I was going to say that I'm in engagement with Muslims mm. and obviously I've become aware that their um, model of revelation is very much what I would call the divine download. Yeah, yeah. The reality is, very practically, typical normal Christians, which I used to be, <laughs> actually we kind of believed wholeheartedly mm. in the divine download. So when we get exposed to uh, yeah. all of this, the reality is you're right, absolutely, yeah. because now I have some more education and learning um, I've been reassured by much of the thing you've mm. brought, but initially, that's not reassuring. That's like, mm. oh my goodness, it's very controversial. It's potentially, it feels like it's undermining the authority mm. of Scripture and the movement of God in and through and over mm. and superintending and all of that part. 
But, but the reality is that Christianity is really a historical religion. Jesus is a mm. historical person. It's open to historical critique. And it, it, it stands up to all of that. Yeah. But unfortunately, we, in, you know, ordinary mm. people mm. in mm. the ordinary church is rarely exposed to mm. what turns out to be enormous strengths initially can appear like weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. I'm exposed to it. But then we encounter your atheists or Muslims right. in different models. And we can be very easily lost. Yeah. So my question was, what reassurance would you have for, as an academic for the pastor mm, who's had mm. a bit of a crossroads about what to share with his people? Yeah. Somebody else is going to share a highly yeah. critical... I think that's a very, a, a very good kind of point uh, to make from the floor, as saying that if we as, as Christians have or, or purvey from the pulpit a sort of rather, what we would say is simplistic notion of divine revelation of the sort of Islamic divine download dictation view of how uh, the Gospels came about, then uh, folks like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, who then reveal to them that there is there's a historical process going on in the production of that literature that finds its way into the Bible. Um, that we are reconstructing what's in your Bible from fragmentary copies of ancient texts that have happened to survive to today, and so on. That that, um, at first glance, because of that background of a sort of simplistic understanding of things, can, can feel to undermine that simplistic understanding, and when you're conflating the simplistic understanding with, with the, the, the true Christian view of things, therefore undermine your Christian belief about things. So I think that is a, 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 a spur to the importance of sharing from the pulpit in appropriate moments the, the, the more Christian view of it and to go into when you're preaching on, on Luke, don't miss out the preface, you know. Um, don't miss out when they, when they quote things. Um, to be able to share something in, in sermons about the criteria of authenticity or, or something. Um, I, was, I did a, a sermon a few weeks ago on Jesus healing the blind man stroke men outside of Jericho as he's leaving Jericho or going into Jericho and raising those issues and saying those of you who know this story in another gospel might be thinking to yourself hang on a minute doesn't in the other gospel it says it was as if he was leaving and this one it says it was as he was going in what's that about was there one or were there two blind men how do we know that this story is is reliable therefore and, and looking at sort of Bochum's things on actually there's probably an indication that that story and it comes from and he's named blind Bartimaeus son of Timaeus it's probably blind Bartimaeus who then joined them on the road to Jerusalem for the Passion Week and so on probably became a Christian and is part, part of the known Christian community there and he is the, the oral trade ent in the oral culture as it's called for that story uh, and so on so to to the raise, and that, I think that's a whole area sort of called uh, apologetic preaching sometimes uh, of um, yes of course we believe that the Bible has authority but it's not, it's, it's not undermining of the biblical authority to say I know the average person on the street that you may talk to or you in the pew may be thinking to yourself the kind of obvious question that reading that text raises for you of hang on a minute, how do I square that? You know, to, to have that question isn't to be unfaithful or faithless or, you know, not trusting of God. 
It is actually to think, well, there's an obvious question here. How do I square that? I'm going to start out assuming that there must be a way of squaring this. Of noting that um, there was the old, old Jericho and the new Jericho that was built quite close to it. So actually one person might describe the miracle as happening as he was leaving old Jericho and approaching, you know, or, or actually that the language can be translated not as uh, sort of drawing close to, but as a roundabout. So the, the way in which, our, you know, we're reading a text in translation and different translations make different choices about, <laughs> and so on. But yeah, so I'm getting a little bit derailed, but yeah, I, I think it, it, it tells us that we, we need to, to, to have the, the wherewithal to, to communicate some of this kind of material to our person in the pew audiences. Uh, otherwise, other people are going to take advantage of their ignorance. Yeah. That, would, that would be the quicker answer that I should have given. <laughs> so, two modern myths about Jesus pervaded by the new atheists. Jesus probably didn't exist. And the idea that he was divine doesn't originate with Jesus and his original disciples. It's a later sort of evolutionary development of thought that takes a process of, of a lot of time and as Dan Brown says in um, the Da Vinci Code, you know, nobody thought of Jesus as divine until they voted on it at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. <laughs> so Richard Dawkins says it's even possible to mount a serious, though not widely supported, he does at least admit that, not the widely supported historical case that Jesus never lived at all, as has been done by, among others, Professor G.A. Wells of the University of London. You think, oh, Professor Wells of the University of London, who Dawkins does not tell you, is not a historian, but a professor of German. (laughs) So (laughs) then you start thinking, ah, that's interesting that he's quoting someone who's outside the field to critique it. Um, Nor does he actually tell you that Wells believes that the Q document um, does contain historical information about a Jewish teacher... And in fact, it seems there's been an evolution of Wells' views. He's quite a well-known Jesus sceptic. But he, he now seems to think that there, there are two um, Jewish teachers who are confused with, the, with, with Jesus. So he's gone from not believing in a historical Jesus to believing in two, sort of. Um, so things are more complicated, in other words, than Dawkins uh, lets on. Um, even Dawkins does begrudgingly admit Jesus probably existed. Okay, so even if you're meeting people influenced by the new atheists who are saying it's probable Jesus didn't exist, you know, I've been reading this, that, or the other, to be able to point out to them, look, even the new atheists, even Richard Dawkins says Jesus probably existed. Let's move on, thank you very much. Um, New atheist Victor Stenger asserts a number of scholars have made the case for the non historicity of Jesus, and their conclusions are convincing. So he's going even further than Dawkins. He's endorsing Jesus' uh, mythicism here. He says, in another typical New Atheist screed, he says, there is not a single piece of independent historical evidence, by which he presumably means independent of the Bible, evidence for the existence of Jesus or the veracity of the events described in the New Testament. Not a single piece of independent evidence. Even the much-touted statement by the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus is now accepted by almost all scholars as a forgery. 
the paragraph in Antiquities that mentions Christ, his wonderful works, death on the cross and appearance three days later, does not appear in the earliest copies of that work. And not until the 4th century. Seems very damning of the case for historical Christ. All of that is false. It's just false. He is wrong on each and every count there, each and every claim. Here's a slide um, from an atheist blog I found online. And it's a picture of Bart Ehrman, the agnostic New Testament scholar, and a quote from him. And in this quote, Bart Ehrman says, In the entire first Christian century, Jesus is not mentioned by a single Greek or Roman historian, religion scholar, politician, philosopher, or poet. His name never occurs in a single inscription, and it is never found in a single piece of private correspondence. Zero zip references. Okay. Well, first, considering that Paul was a Roman citizen, don't the writings of Paul count as first century personal correspondence by a Roman religious scholar (laughs) who mentions Jesus? Secondly, what about the writings of a certain Greek doctor and sometimes travelling companion of Paul called Luke? Luke is a first century Greek historian. (laughs) Third, one can't ignore evidence from non-Christian sources in the second century, particularly the early second century. That is not too late to do history with. Fourth, one can't discount Christian sources uh, from the second century like Ignatius and Polycarp who knew apostles like Peter and John. There was a direct line of relationship there. So you can't ignore non-Christian second century or Christian second century sources. Fifth, Ehrman grants the importance of the first century Christian testimony about Jesus. And we'll come back to that. And six, one can't discount the archaeological, including, I would argue, inscriptional evidence of Jesus. We'll come back to that as well. So, what about extra-biblical early Christian sources? So here we have Jesus and the eyewitness generation, if you like. And guys like Peter and John and Philip the Evangelist, and he has some daughters. And then there are guys like Ignatius and Papias and Polycarp and Irenaeus, who knew various of these people. So Ignatius of Antioch, early 2nd century martyr, he was torn to shreds by lions. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. We're told by various sources that the Apostle Peter appointed Ignatius bishop. He refused to deny Christ and was thrown to the lions in Rome. And Eusebius says Ignatius was martyred in about 108 AD. So this is very early, 2nd century, that he gives up his life for Christ. Um, This is 217 years Dan Brown, before the Council of Nicaea. And Ignatius wrote of, quote, our God, Jesus. <laughs> Nobody thought of Jesus as divine until the Council of Nicaea. This is 217 years before. And I haven't gone to the New Testament. I've just gone to 
8 AD at the latest there. A couple of quotes from Ignatius where he has these sort of practically creedal passages encourages the folks he's writing to about Jesus Christ who died that you might escape death through faith in his death and that's obviously why he's willing to go to his death at the moors of lions turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ who was of David's line born of Mary who was truly born ate and drank now the interesting thing about this is he is countering an early Christian heresy that particularly Greco-Roman influenced people of a spiritual bent were tempted by in the beginning of the second century that early heresy is to agree with the Christians that Jesus is divine but to deny that he was human (laughs) I think that's an interesting point he truly born, ate and drank was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate cruelly crucified and died was truly raised from the dead the father having raised him who in like manner will raise us even if we're torn to shreds by lions for believing this now this um, quote from Bar Ehrman used by the, the blog that I took it from where is that quote from? it's from Bar Ehrman's book did Jesus exist? Question mark. subtitle the historical argument for Jesus of Nazareth it's a book in which Bar Ehrman argues against the Jesus mythicists <laughs> that there is good historical reason to believe that Jesus really existed. <laughs> and yet, this quote, out of context, is being used to push a mythicist view. So, Bar Ehrman, although quite known as a skeptic, who in other contexts the New Atheists love to quote because of his skepticism on these issues says with respect to Jesus we have numerous independent accounts of his life in the sources lying behind the Gospels and the writings of Paul sources that originated in Jesus' native, native tongue of Aramaic and that can be dated to within just a year or two of his life historical sources like that are pretty astounding for an ancient figure of any kind so depending on which bits of Bart Ehrman you quote you can paint him as an extreme sceptic or practically as sounding like an evangelical Bible scholar you know, you've got to put these things in context uh, Bart Ehrman points out that Paul must have converted to believe in Jesus within two or three years of the date of Jesus' death and Paul knew from facts about Jesus' life he knew some of his teachings he knew his closest disciple Peter he knew his brother James personally if Jesus didn't exist, you would think that his brother would know about it, <laughs> says Bart Ehrman. That's a great point, isn't it? The historian can't simply ignore what Paul has to say since he was a Christian. Taking his biases into account, we can use his letters for information about Jesus. And they show beyond a doubt that Jesus existed as a Jewish teacher in Palestine. Back to Victor Stenger, remember, there is no independent historical evidence for the existence of Jesus. He says, in fact, there isn't a shred of independent evidence that Jesus Christ is a historical figure. (laughs) What do do people mean by, I mean, I wonder what he means by independent. Yeah, I think he means... Some government-sanctioned documentarian (laughs) went along with uh, film crew. What is it that he... Yeah, I think he means not Christian. 
But as Bart Ehrman says, you can't just say, oh, it's a Christian, therefore I'm not going to believe it. It's a bit like saying, uh, someone's arguing, we should be sceptical that the Holocaust happened, and as we know, part of it happened just down, down the road. We passed it in the coach on the way back to the airport, some of us. Didn't happen, because you can't trust the reports of those Jews who survived it, like Primo Levi and so on, because they're biased, aren't they? Because they believed it happened, because they were there, you know? So they're biased. <laughs> you can't, like... So we're not going to believe Paul about it because like, he knew Jesus' his brother. He's biased. <laughs> Michel Alfrey makes the, the only slightly less incautious claim that there are only two or three vague references to Jesus in ancient texts. So uh, Alfrey doesn't agree with, with Stenger at least. Gary Habermas says that um, ancient secular sources, secular sources, so not Christian, independent in, uh, in that sense, Corroborate the picture presented by the Gospels. They include ancient historians such as Tacitus, Suetonius, Thallus, Josephus, the Talmud, Pliny the Younger, the Roman Caesars, Trajan, and Hadrian describe early Christian beliefs and practices about Jesus. Greek historian and satirist Lucian and Syrian Marabar uh, Serpian provide other details. At least 17 non Christian writings record more than 50 details concerning the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus plus details concerning the earliest church. Dated approximately 20 to 150 years after Jesus' death, these secular sources are quite early by the standards of ancient historiography, as we've seen. Indeed, I think he says about, there's about a dozen non-Christian sources that independently mention the death of Jesus. And I said we come back to inscriptional. There was a stage where this would have been more controversial for me to say, but... This first century AD chalk ossuary, bone box, when after the initial internment of someone, you come back once the flesh is gone and you intern the bones in an ossuary box. This is something the Jews did in the first century before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And this chalk ossuary is dated to the mid-first century. That's about 30 years after the crucifixion. There's an inscription on it. You might just be able to make out here. It's repeated up here. We're reading right to left because this is in Hebrew. Jacob Bach Yosef Achid Yoshua. That is James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. James was martyred, as we know from Josephus, uh, about AD 62. So that ties up with the date. Ben Witherington says, if, as seems probable, the ossuary found in the vicinity of Jerusalem and dated to about AD 63 is indeed the burial box of James, the brother of Jesus, as it says, this inscription is the most important extra-biblical evidence of its kind. Paul Almeyer, historian, says there's a strong though not absolutely conclusive evidence that yes, the ossuary and its inscription are not only authentic, but the inscribed names are the New Testament personalities. Herschel Shanks, who's the editor of Biblical Archaeology uh, Review magazine, uh, argues that this box is more likely the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus of Nazareth, than not. And you might be interested in looking at his book with Ben Witherington, uh, the brother of Jesus. And this was controversial because... There was a, a stage of the, um, 
the Israeli authorities uh, accusing various collectors of forging various apparent um, historical archaeological finds. And this box, as a lot of things are, wasn't actually dug up in, in, in situ, but its significance was recognised uh, when it was already in the collection of the collector, and he was accused uh, by the Israeli authorities of having forged uh, the inscription on the old box. Um, and he was actually taken to court by the Israeli authorities, and the court case collapsed and vindicated the collector. Uh, so we've been through that. So if you read some archaeology books on the New Testament from a few years ago, they will mention this and then say, but it is a forgery. Um, but now it seems that uh, the evidence has gone the other way. The court case has collapsed and vindicated him. And as you can see, a number of respected scholars in the field say that, yes, this is its not knocked down, but there is a good case to be made. So uh, even probably... <laughs> Uh, inscriptional first evident uh, century AD evidence for the existence of Jesus. So, Yusuf uh, Vermez, who died recently, is a Jewish New Testament scholar, not a Christian, uh, argues uh, in his book The Resurrection Jesus was a real historical person. In my opinion, the difficulties affecting, arising from the denial of his existence, still veriferously maintained in a small circle of rationalist dogmatists far exceed those deriving from its acceptance. Bart Ehrman says, whether we like it or not, Jesus certainly existed. We have more evidence, indeed, he says, we have more evidence for Jesus than we have for almost anybody from his time period. Says Bart Ehrman. (laughs) Any questions on the existence uh, of Jesus? See, again, I'm I'm making the rhetorical move, so I'm I'm thinking in terms of sort of equipping for these discussions that come up in the pub occasionally or whatever, (laughs) that if you are able to quote what the the person asking the the question or or holding this objection, what they would consider to be an unbiased source. So if you say, well, look, you know, New Testament scholar Ben Witherington, so-and-so says, they will immediately take on, it's not a good critique, you know, but this whole, oh, they're biased, they're Christian, they would think that, they're New Testament scholars, they're all Christians, they want it, want it to be true, as um, atheist Peter Atkins says, and so on. But if you can say, hey, you know that Bart Ehrman that you like reading because he's sceptical about the New Testament and so on, he says Jesus almost, you know, certainly existed. Richard Dawkins, in The God Delusion, said Jesus probably existed, <laughs> etc. Um, that's why I like putting those... Use the, use the quote from the, from the enemy source, enemy attestation, <laughs> uh, to uh, go back to that New Testament criteria. Mm. Yeah. I think it's noteworthy to see the kind of arguments that they're using all the time. They would say, scholarly theologians mm. will say, mm. and educated people will yes. say, it's yeah. hard for the common man to to be able to evaluate uh, what's your sources yeah, yeah. of this. So I mean, I, I told you, it's, I really appreciate that you read up through all this rubbish literature and yeah. find their own weaknesses yeah. Yeah, yeah. and see actually how absolutely hollow their arguments are yeah. and how everything that we have 
within our faith is absolutely rock mm. solid mm. against mm. all of their arguments. Yeah. Absolutely. If you're, if you're able to point out and say, okay, this Jesus Smith is this thing, Dawkins refers you to a guy that he doesn't tell you is a professor of German and not a professional historian, and I can refer you to a, a sceptical New Testament guy that is beloved of being quoted by new atheists, he says exactly the opposite. <laughs> um, but I think that's the move to make, yeah. So as Mark Mickelberg um, points out, the common claim today is that belief in Jesus as the unique divine person, son of God, etc., it arose long after he walked the earth. Uh, such books as the Da Vinci Code, which we've already mentioned, have popularised the notion that it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea three centuries after Jesus, that Christians started worshipping him. Um, the best scholarship, of course, shows this simply not to be the case. That's, um, this is uh, another move I'd like to do. This is a quote from Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, best-selling uh, novel, of course, and thus influential. And I can refute this simply by looking at the archaeological record. So again, I'm not going to go to, but it says in the Bible... I'm going to go to, but we've dug this up. <laughs> uh, okay, so Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, says Professor Teeming. Not the Son of God? asks another character. Right, Teeming says, Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325 AD. Um, dash, to use the English phrase, but... Um, it's interesting to show that you can show that simply from looking at the archaeological record and so on, as well as looking at the New Testament. So we'll do a bit of both. Um, because here, uh, again, this, and this allows us to, to look at the use of those New Testament criteria um, kind of approach that I was talking about earlier as well. So we'll kill two birds with one stone. This is a, a list of miracles performed by Jesus, specific miracles that are mentioned, um, that are mentioned in more than one gospel. Uh, and so it's, of course, particularly significant to note uh, that um, I've divided the miracles up into various types of miracle. So, so nature miracles, like feeding the 5,000, healing miracles, um, exorcisms, and revivifications, bringing people back from the dead, which is not the same as resurrections. <laughs> um, revivifications. Um, each of those category of miracle performed by Jesus is attested by multiple very early independent sources. And there are even specific miracles that are attested by multiple early and independent sources that include eyewitness reports, say John Matthew Q, and follows close upon the reported events by comparison with other works of ancient history. So if we take the feeding of the 5,000 here, mentioned by all four Gospels, and put it in context. So the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, in Exodus. Two kings talks about a man uh, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he said it before them, and they ate and had some left over. 
And then Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus others from very little (laughs) with leftovers as reported by all four Gospels. By early multiple independent sources including eyewitness sources. Now given that Old Testament background as well you can see there's something being said by Jesus in, in doing that miracle about who he is. <laughs> um, can you make out, uh, the, this picture is a little fuzzy here, but the, you see there's a sort of table-like thing here, a, a bed, and there's a guy here, two legs, arms, and there's his head, and he's got his arm up, he's carrying a sort of table bed thing. And there's a figure in a sort of toga here with an arm, raised out over the, over the bed. This is a, a wall painting from a house church baptistry in Dura Europos, which is modern-day Syria. And this painting is dated to about 232 AD. What does this picture remind you of? What do you think this is a picture of? Yeah. The healing of the paralyzed man, referenced in all three synoptic gospels. Um, Mark being the earliest. So, a story in which, why does this fellow talk like that? His blaspheming, who can forgive, forgive sins but God alone? So, again, it's a, it's a miracle story connected with a divine claim on Jesus' part. Calming the storm, likewise. Think of Psalm 107. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Jesus' calming of the storm is attested by the criteria of embarrassment because the disciples didn't trust Jesus. Lord, don't you care? We're all going to drown. Why don't you have faith? He berates them. It's embarrassing. Is multiple sources. They're early sources. They include eyewitness testimony. We've got Matthew reporting this. So we've got multiple of these historical criteria being passed. Let alone any evidence you have for the general liability of the, the New Testament stories. This, by the way, is the uh, a first century boat uh, that was um, dug up out the shoreline of Galilee when they had a drought one year. This is a sort of size fishing boat um, that would have been on the occasion. Or walking on water, which again is three Gospels mention it, including the literarily speaking independence, so independent sources of John. Job 9.8, he, as God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus walking on water, evidenced by early, multiple, independent, including eyewitness sources and the criteria of embarrassment. Because, look at the reaction of the, of the disciples uh, to, the, uh, to the event. <laughs> and again, here's another wall painting from the, uh, the house church in Dura Europos, and you can just about make out here two figures standing on the water, and one of them is Jesus, one of them is Peter, who of course then stops having faith and starts drowning, <laughs> uh, which is quite embarrassing. <laughs> 
So you've got these miracles that are evidenced by multiple criteria of historicity, and clearly they're best understood against the Old Testament background as kind of enacted claims to prophethood and divinity on Jesus' part. Now, even if you were minded to say, taking a sceptical stance, I don't think miracles happen, I don't think they happened, what are these stories, what's the function of these stories within that literature, therefore? Uh, Clearly, they're being told to convey the idea that Jesus is divine. Even if you don't think they're true stories, the function of the story is to make the claim that Jesus is divine. (laughs) Uh, So that's, you know, without going to the sort of direct, where can we see Jesus saying, I am, and and so on. Um, Or saying, you know, looking into the the Son of Man and the background of of all that. But these miracle stories, evinced by multiple criteria, um, also make this point indirectly. The Lord is my shepherd, and here is Jesus, of course. As the shepherd, this is right above the baptistry in that church. Jesus is carrying a sheep. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus in John. Um, this is a fascinating bit of archaeology. A number of years ago, they were trying to extend a prison in Megiddo. Um, they're going to build a new prison block or something, and they stumbled across a bit of archaeology. Not only a series of small walls, as you often get in archaeological situations, but a wonderful uh, mosaic floor. We're looking down on a mosaic floor here. We've got a sort of plinth for a, a table. The tabletop's missing. We've got these wonderfully elaborate mosaics around here. Um, discovered in 2005 and dated by the, the pottery and so on to about 230 AD. So that's, what, 200 years after the death of Christ. Here's a, a closer-up um, although somewhat grainy picture. Note, first of all, these fish in the mosaic here. There's a closer-up detail of the the fish. And we know, of course, that the ichthus, the fish in Greek, was an early Greek symbol for Christians um, because the the letters of the word fish, ichthus, was an acrostic uh, for uh, Jesus Christus Theos Iosota, that is, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Saviour. So that's, that's quite interesting to find archaeological information that, that I think pretty clearly shows this community uh, were Christians who thought of Jesus as God's son. They're using this fish symbol. Um, but you might perhaps argue, oh no, that is just a reference to the feeding of the 5,000, or which is an inactive claim to divinity. So, so I think it comes back to, there's an interesting thing here with the fish. But this is the real clincher. This inscription here with the underlined word the God-loving Acaptus has offered the table to God Jesus Christ as a memorial what, what uh, year is this dated to again to about 230 AD it's the earliest Christian church thus far found um, so uh, remember Council of Nicaea 325 AD so this is about 100 years before Bart Ehrman says anyone thought of Jesus as being divine. There's the fish over on the left side, underneath the... Yeah. Yeah, on this side. And that's on this side here. <coughs> the famous Alex Aminos graffiti, um, or in the Latin, graffito, 
such a different language. Um, wall graffiti near Palatinian Hill, a uh, Palatine Hill in Rome, uh, generally dated. I've seen a range of dates for this, but um, Richard Bockham says about AD 200, so maybe a little earlier than that church floor. Uh, and again, you have the, the um, donkey-headed man on a cross who's been crucified. That really is to make an ass of yourself, to get yourself crucified, culturally speaking. Um, but who really is the bigger ass here? Uh, the guy who's crucified, or this guy, Alexaminos, who is worshipping his god? <laughs> what an idiot! He's worshipping a crucified bloke. What a wally, you know. And so some guy has done this bit of graffiti. Um, Alex Minos worships his god, or some translations say it says Alex Minos, worship your god. Uh, and it says something about the, the, the cultural context of, of the cultural shame and embarrassment of trying to promulgate a, a religion in which you say, yeah, um, I've got a new religion that you might want to consider joining. We follow a guy who was crucified. Um, that's a quite a big cultural ask, you can see, in the context. Um, this is a report from 2011 from the Live Science website. Uh, researchers identify what's believed to be the world's earliest surviving Christian inscription. So I, I should mention, of course, the, the key word here is worships. It worships his God. So it, this, Alex Minos is clearly thinking of Jesus. I mean, who else could that be in context as, as divine? Um, about 280. Um, yeah. Life science. Uh, the world's earliest surviving Christian or semi-Christian, perhaps, inscription, uh, called by the fantastic name of NCE156. So it's got a proper scholarly record here. That's tagged NCE156. Inscription in Greek. It's dated to the latter half of the second century. Uh, it alludes to various Christian beliefs. I quote, if it is in fact a second century inscription, as I think it probably is, it is about the earliest Christian material object that we possess, uh, says uh, Gregory Snyder, blah, blah, blah. Um, details the finding in the most recent issue of the Journal of Early, Early Christian Studies, believes it to be a funereal epigram incorporating both Christian and pagan elements. And it's not the sort of thing that we would inscribe on the urn of dear departed Aunt Matilda, um, but... It's a whole other culture of the past, but, but this is their the funereal sort of poem. Uh, it, 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 it's sort of poetic imagery here. To my, to my bath, to the brothers of the bridal chamber, carry the torches here in our halls. They hunger for the true banquets, even while praising the Father and glorifying the Son. There... We think with the Father and the Son, is the only spring and source of truth. So you can see it, it's saying something about sort of we're, we're carrying you, and you, we've prepared you, we've bathed you, we're carrying you to, a, to, a, to, the, to the banquet beyond where you meet the real source of truth. Um, some sort of saying this may have some sort of Gnostic sort of overtones to it. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the line of praising the Father and glorifying the sun is very redolent Christian imagery uh, that seems to uh, speak of, uh, of the divinity of the sun in the same breath of God the, the Father. Um, so, uh, latter half of the, of the second century, so that would say plump for, you know, 175 AD, something like that. 
Uh, John Loftus, atheist, claims that Christians gradually developed a higher, more glorified view of Jesus in a process of deification that he says took at least 70 years. Uh, Now, that claim is, at the moment, consistent with the archaeological record. I can't undermine that by pointing at something we've dug up, a stone or an epigram or a a picture. But it is clearly not consistent with the textual evidence. We've looked at some of that already uh, when we looked at the the miracles uh, claims in in the four Gospels. But even if you don't go to the Gospels, go to the letters been thinking more recently about the sort of apologetic use of the New Testament letters. And here's a graph showing the approximate dates of publications of the, the rest of the New Testament apart from the Gospels. Uh, so if we have here the crucifixion in, in say, 33 AD, then uh, probably the last book of the New Testament to be written and published was Revelation. It's all in the first century. We go back to the letters... John, so on, tracing back. It seems to be generally agreed, and I've, I've read a fair number of, of the commentaries and so on thus far, it seems to be generally agreed that probably the letter of James might be the earliest New Testament document, published, say, about 48, 4850 uh, AD. Well, it, taking Loftus's claim that there was a sort of 70-year process of gradually having a more and more glorified view of Jesus, a sort of evolutionary of Christology, as it's called, towards a, a high Christology, thinking of Jesus as divine. Well, that would put people thinking about Jesus as divine for the first time round about the end of the first century. But then what do you do with in the Titus, that is Titus, when Jesus is called our great God and saviour in the book of in Titus? Or um, in Colossians, uh, about 60-something AD, uh, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, says in Christ. Or James. Let's look at James, the earliest letter. Um, I think this is fascinating. I was talking uh, earlier today with Dirk Jonkine from um, Tyndale House in Cambridge because I wanted to run this past him because I, I haven't seen anyone make this point before and I wanted to just check whether or not I was being kooky. <laughs> so I had a check with Dirk, and he thought it was interesting. And there's, uh, in James 2.7, you find this. Um, James talking about uh, the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. Now, I've said before, Christians were not first called Christians by themselves, but by non-Christians who gave them the name Christian. And then Christian literally means slave of Christ, or follower of Christ, whereas literally slave. So you can see it could be a sort of derogatory term, or oh, you're slaves of Christ. But of course, Christians might be thinking, oh yeah, well, Jesus did talk about you know, either being slaves to sin, or we have this kind of, you know, we're adopting that kind of thing. Um, and who is the name to whom, the noble name to whom a Christian belongs, other than Jesus Christ? Well, that's the name that they're being called by. I mean, of course they think they belong to God the Father, but they're not being called God the Fathians. 
or God the Holy Spiritians. They're called Christians. Um, well, I, I, I think so. Um, that is, <laughs> that is going to be a historical point to look a little bit more into, but certainly we, we know from other early New Testament letters and uh, 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 other early New Testament bits that it was um, the non-Christians who started calling the Christians that at quite an early date. And uh, in a sense, when you think the, the noble name to whom you belong, given the fact that Christian literally means belonging to Christ, slave of Christ. Um, is there, is there key words there, blaspheming, which we normally associate right. with God, but also the belonging, which it, to yeah. me is really to belong to. Is, is there both of those operative there to kind of point to this is more worshipful status. Yeah, I think particularly, and also you've got the, the noble name yes. of him to whom you belong. It's being used as a term of derision, but we consider it to be a noble name and those who are deriding us for follow, belonging to are blaspheming. Yeah. Uh, and of course, James not only early but very, puts it back in a very Jewish milieu of a Jewish monotheistic in the first half of the first century. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's interesting. But yeah, I, I want to follow up a little bit on, on what data can we, can we say about when the name Christian was first used. But I think you could take this, given that context, as evidence that the name Christian was being used then. But it would be nice to have an independent um, sort of look at that, yeah. Given that the letter is written by James, the brother of Christ, who was right. previous to the resurrection, <coughs> yeah, it's it's also very strong. It claims to authenticity, as you mentioned. Yes, before. yeah. Um, right, yeah. Another, another point that, of course, this is written by James, who we, we know from other sources is, uh, is not on side with Christ prior to the resurrection, but who then became a leading figure in the early church and was martyred for his belief. Uh, which is another sign of sincerity, if not truth. So, you've, yeah, you've got, uh, you know, a, a, a first half of the first century, t- soon to be martyred in 62, brother of Christ, who embarrassingly didn't follow him during his life, now writing about something that I think very clearly uh, affirms a belief in the deity of his brother. Yeah. Uh, when you say that the architectural evidence that we have today... Uh, the uh, archaeological, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, they support the claims of this uh, Loftus. Uh, no, I, I say the, the archaeological evidence doesn't contradict right. the claims of Loftus. So, yeah. So there's uh, all it means is there there is no evidence, uh, archaeological evidence that support the, the divinity of Christ before uh, about year uh, 100. And, right. Well, and, and there's pretty much nothing before that. Is that what yeah, you're because so. Um, so think of the, the house church floor was 230-something. Yeah. The, the funereal epigram was maybe a, f- a few years earlier than that. The Alex Aminos Graffito, I've seen a range of dates. I took 200 there. Some have said a bit earlier, some have said later. So I don't think we've got anything material stone, in stone or in mosaic, whatever, that we've dug up right. that, that says anything 
about the subject, basically. Right, so there's nothing supporting an, e an evolutionary late Christology in the archaeology, but there's nothing contradicting it. To do that, you have to go to, I mean, in a sense, we've dug up, so it's archaeological, but the, the textual um, evidence. Yeah. Um, whereas if you want to go to the existence of Jesus question, I think you, you could now argue that the, the James Ossery gives you very early inscriptional evidence for the existence of Jesus. But it doesn't really say anything about who those people thought Jesus was. It's kind of odd that you should mention the brother of someone on, on, a, on such a um, note on an ossery. It's usually just so-and-so, you know, son of so-and-so or daughter of so-and-so. And so the fact that the brother of so-and-so but is there as well sort of indicates that there, there was something famous or significant about the brother that made it m worth mentioning, but you can't really get much mileage out of, out of that in terms of Christology. Yeah. So, um, this is a good book, The Case of the Divinity of Jesus by Dean L. Overman, um, who's a lawyer uh, by background. Um, says, the early lit earliest literary sources in our possession that we know for certain were written within decades of Jesus' death contain these devotional creeds and hymns and liturgical formulae that pre-existed those literary sources and were then incorporated into them, a bit like the sources behind the Gospels. And they present compelling evidence of a pattern of worship of Jesus as a resurrected divine being, dating from a time almost contemporaneous with the events. And here we're, we can point out about things about Jesus being prayed to and worshipped from the very beginning of early Christianity. Um, in the, in the so-called undisputed letters of Paul, written before the end of the 50s AD, they demonstrate a concept of a divine Jesus was already present 16 to 20 years after the crucifixion. Um, J.P. Moreland, uh, again, talking about Paul's letters containing a number of creeds and hymns. Um, they often translate very easily back into Aramaic, and they show features of Hebrew poetry form and thought forms. And that means they came into existence while the church was heavily Jewish, and thus heavily monotheistic. Um, and that they became standard, recognised creeds and hymns before their incorporation into Paul's letters. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any point quoting it, quoting it as a sort of teaching or authority kind of source. And they constantly present a miraculous, divine Jesus who rose from the dead. Um, so, you know, the famous so-called trilemma, lunatic liar lord, uh, argument for the uh, divinity of Jesus. And the new atheists do engage with this. This is one, this is one thing that they do engage with. Um, having conceded that Jesus was, quote, a real historical person in a 2013 debate with William Lane Craig, having earlier been sceptical, um, but Craig pointed out to him that he was wrong about this and he did change his mind, credit to him about it. In, late, in a later, later debate, um, Lawrence Krauss said that Jesus was a real historical person. Uh, and then he said that he had delusions of being God. Well, okay, um, he's rejecting the truth of Jesus' claim to divinity, but Krauss is conceding the existence and sincerity of that claim on Jesus' part to be divine. Um, Christopher Hitchens, likewise. Christopher Hitchens admitted that Jesus, quote, reportedly believed himself 
at least some of the time, to be God or the Son of God. You just hear him using that phrase, at least some of the time. Yeah. Yeah, yes. As if that makes any difference to the argument that, you, that, that would, would follow. <laughs> so given that claim, and, and many people uh, attack Lewis's famous formulation of the argument, although he wasn't really in context doing this as, as an argument for the divinity, quite uh, as, as assuming that Jesus made those claims historically. Um, I'll just simply say, yeah, Lewis's argument kind of kicks in once you give that claim <laughs> and um, they've just given it to me so I'm, I'm going to run with it and I think you can argue for it historically um, previous to mounting this argument um, a man who was merely a man said Lewis famously and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher remember uh, back to uh, earlier on when we were looking at Colin McGinn saying you know, I respect the ethical teachings uh, of Jesus he's a great moral teacher but I dump all the supernatural baggage. People are still saying the same things today. Uh, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says, I'm a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell, i.e. a very overblown uh, way of saying he would be a blaspheming, conniving liar. You must take your choice. Either this was and is, therefore, the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Uh, 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 you can shut him up for a fool, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. Um, put that to, to begin. And of course, Krauss uh, says that he, was, he had delusions of being God. So he's, Krauss is prepared to say, yeah, Jesus claimed divinity, and I think he was a mad guy. Okay, so he's prepared to, to bite the bullet on that one. Uh, Journalist Fanny Kiefer asked Richard Dawkins his view on this argument, though. When you read some of C.S. Lewis, uh, why do you think someone who's a scholar is grabbed by faith? Dawkins, well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis. He was, after all, a professor of English. (laughs) Just like G.A. Wells is a professor of German. Or, no, Um, (laughs) a professor of English. He was trained at Oxford in classical philosophy and taught philosophy at Oxford for a year. Um, <laughs> and has been influential for a reason um, and no doubt a very good one but when you read some of his arguments they're just pathetic things like well Jesus claimed to be the son of God so either Jesus was mad or bad or he really was the son of God I mean it didn't seem to occur to him that Jesus could simply be mistaken sincerely and honestly mistaken I mean what a pathetic argument now, you just had, as an audience, the reaction to what Richard Dawkins said there that every single audience that I've read that quote to has had. Um, you were laughing by the end of that last paragraph um, because it is so patently absurd. In other words, we've had this, if Jesus claimed divinity, well, that's either true and he's Lord or false. And if it was false, then either he believed it or he didn't. Uh, and if he didn't, he's a liar. And if he did, he's a lunatic. And Dawkins says, well, this is far too simplistic. There's another option. This is a false trilemma. Um, Obviously, you've got the option that Jesus was just honestly mistaken. It was false. Uh, He believed it, um, but he was wrong about that. But he wasn't mad. He was just mistaken. 
A fourth possibility, almost too obvious to need mentioning, is that Jesus was honestly mistaken. Plenty of people are, he says in the God Delusion. You know, sometimes I think I've left my keys in my pocket when actually they're on the mantelpiece. Um, Sometimes I think the butter is in the top shelf of the fridge when actually it's ended up in the bottom shelf. Sometimes first century Palestinian Jews go around claiming to be divine sincerely, but they're not, but they're not mad. You know, they're just honestly mistaken. (laughs) Yeah, pull the other one. Um, (laughs) Stephen T. Davis points out, it is not easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief I am divine. Okay? Um, Nicky Gumbel, I think, um, he's the guy behind the, uh, the Alpha course. Um, and nails this one uh, with a bit of wit. He says, the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God. But Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. <laughs> I love that wit. So I, I really think this is, this is practically the least plausible alternative uh, explanation of what's going on here. Uh, it would be, I think, even more. It would be more plausible to say with uh, Krauss that Jesus was a lunatic than to say that he was just honestly mistaken. As Mike King says, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. But here's the kicker: Why should Dawkins et al. not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? Why not join Lawrence Krauss, Richard Dawkins? Well, quite clearly, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus's life demonstrates both of those possibilities to be untenable. Why does Dawkins feel the need need to create this extra category and not to go for lunatic or liar? (laughs) What's so difficult about that? I mean, Lawrence Krauss does it, but maybe um, Dawkins knows a little bit more about the historical record and thinks it doesn't really fit, maybe. Um, Because Dawkins does say... There's no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. <laughs> so uh, he, he sees the difficulty with, with invoking, as Krauss does, uh, the lunatic category for Jesus. And also Dawkins doesn't think Jesus was a deceiving liar. He doesn't think that really fits with the fact that he does think he was a good moral teacher. <laughs> he says... Jesus was a great moral teacher. He acknowledges the moral superiority of Jesus. He talks about his genuinely original and radical ethics. And it was not for nothing. I wrote an article called Atheists for Jesus, says Dawkins. So like McGinn, he wants to say, Jesus was nothing but a good moral teacher. And as Lewis excellently points out, that just really doesn't square as a hypothesis. So, to the extent that these are unlikely and doesn't fit with the rest of our evidence, so to that extent it pushes us towards the Jesus is Lord theory. Now, I wouldn't myself present this as a knockdown argument for the Christian view of Jesus. I would use this as part of a cumulative case of arguments. So it's one of the five arguments I give in my book, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. So I use it as part of a cumulative case. But I, I certainly think it's something that should make the sceptic uncomfortable with Jesus and want to dig in more. You should put uh, a stone in their shoe, uh, as Kukul uh, puts it. Okay, we can expand 
from a tri trilemma to a quadrilemma, if you like, uh, but it doesn't seem that that makes it any more uh, of a plausible response than the, than the other two pre-existing alternatives to Jesus is Lord. So let's stop there for some questions, comments, reflections. Have you, um, I mean, have you been able to engage with any of these people in any face-to-face -face or across any kind of media? Yeah. I have to, to a small extent but unfortunately not on this issue of the historical Jesus I've, because of my background in philosophy uh, I've focused on uh, the new atheist engagement with natural theology arguments for God before so I, I took part in a debate at the Cambridge Union where I was paired with Bill Craig uh, against a, a, a couple of guys, guys from the British um, Secular Society and a, a, a philosopher from Cambridge Ahmed an atheist um, philosopher from Cambridge and we had a debate you can find the video of that online um, but that was a debate about uh, whether belief in God is a delusion off the back of the God delusion book and I've debated on Premier Christian Radio on Justin Briley's Unbelievable Show which you can get the podcast of available freely um, with AC Grayling who's a new atheist philosopher from the UK um, on, on some of the arguments for God um, but yeah, as I say, I, previously I'm, I'm sort of working up, although I've done a book on the historical Jesus before, I haven't specifically been looking at what do the new atheists say about it. And I'm kind of, kind of researching and writing about that at the moment, um, hence an opportunity to sort of trial some of that here. So uh, maybe... philosophical expertise, I mean, isn't one of the things about Dawkins is that he got highly critiqued by even atheist philosophers mm, mm. for saying that, you know, obviously... His method, his understanding is so poor in that area. Yes, yes. That he was aware of his death. Yeah, that's right. But uh, I mean, <laughs> his book is still um, the, the the most in-depth New Atheist engagement with the arguments for God. He spends the most space dealing with it. And those who you think might be better equipped, so Daniel Dennett, who is at least a professionally trained philosopher, kind of spends a paragraph or two on it and kicks the ball over to Dawkins and says, "Read Dawkins." A.C. Grayling, um, his recent book, um, of which we were debating some of, he spends sort of the first half looking at the God question and the second half sort of exploring humanism as a, as a sort of world and life view and advocating humanism. Um, but he still is, is a shallower engagement with natural theology than you get from Dawkins in terms of the sort of sheer space uh, allotted to it, as far as I can see. So... Um, yeah, it's sort of baffling to me, really, that they, they don't really engage. It's much more sort of polemical. It's the sound, sort of soundbite polemic culture. Um, there was someone re recently um, said, uh, and I can't remember, I wish I could remember who the quote's from, but someone said, uh, and, and it was you know, not, not a Christian. It was a commentator out, out in the, the secular media. So, uh, Richard Dawkins isn't a scientist anymore, he's a journalist. <laughs> um, and it's that sort of a very poor kind of journalistic <laughs> um, take on those issues and communicating information that, that they seem to, to have. Yeah. 
So I, I might dash through this a little bit because I said earlier that, again, the frustrating thing is, think, okay, how do the new atheists respond to the evidence for the historical resurrection of Jesus? And the answer is they don't because they say there isn't any. <laughs> um, despite having debated people, some of them, like Bill Craig, <laughs> who's an expert on the matter, who will give one of his you know, famous five arguments for the existence of God he gives in practically every debate he does, is explaining the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So, yeah, Chris, you had a... Sorry, just that E.O. Wilson was the person who described... Ah, thank you. It was E.O. Wilson who described Dawkins as not a scientist anymore, but a journalist. Thank you. Uh, So they they just don't engage with this literature. I mean, I I, I really don't think that the New Atheists kind of read an introductory textbook to New Testament studies between them. Because you, you find things like Christopher Hitchens misunderstanding basic terminology in the field, like synoptic, which refers to the Matthew, Mark, Luke, rather than John, because there's information shared between them. Um, he, uh, he doesn't understand about Q. Uh, Christopher Hitchens says that, that scholars think that all of the, the Gospels in the Bible are based on Q. So he clearly he just hasn't cracked open a you know New Testament studies 101 book. Uh, it really would, as, as someone else sort of said. It, I think it was um, Terry Eagleton uh, talking about Richard Dawkins criticizing religion, saying, "Can can you imagine yourself in in the shoes of a of a biologist being critiqued by uh, some religious fundamentalist?" Whose only knowledge of biology uh, comes from having read ha- read the something like you know the, the Penguin Book of Birds, <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, and if really it is, it is it is like that. So um, Dawkins here he says the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is zero. Another quote from Dawkins: account of Jesus' resurrection are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Um, Lawrence Krauss. The point about the resurrection is there's no evidence of it. But yeah, let me take you back to where we, we, we started in the conference, saying they make these claims that seem like they're saying, oh, you Christians have got an evidence problem. You just have this blind faith, and there is no evidence, and that's silly, isn't it? And if you don't know better, you think, oh... Well, I don't want to have blind faith. That's, that's bad, isn't it? That is, that's, that's surely bad. And, and evidence is good. And Christians don't have any evidence because it's all about blind faith. And I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Um, but if you know, you know a smidgen about the area, if you know of the existence of people like William Lane Craig debating prominent scholars within the field, like this is a debate with Gerd Ludeman, Jesus' resurrection, a factual figment, or Gary Habermas, debating Anthony G.N. Flew when he was still an atheist, or Richard Swinburne's The Resurrection of God Incarnate, or N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God, which is about this thick, by the way, before you decide to buy it. You can use it as a doorstop when you've finished it. Um, or equally usable as a doorstop when you've finished it, because it is well worth reading, uh, The Resurrection of Jesus by Michael Lycona, who's a, uh, who uh, was a younger guy who worked with Gary Habermas uh, on several books before striking out on his own uh, research in the area. And, uh, you know, new atheists behave as if this sort of literature doesn't exist uh, or as if they didn't, you know, hear what Bill Craig said in his debate with Christopher Hitchens or um, 
you know, they've never met John Lennox, of course, although Dawkins has debated him twice and so on. Yeah. Uh, I think I read that uh, Bart German he acknowledges that uh, uh, it's we, we, uh, beyond any doubt that the, the early believers really believed that Jesus uh, raised from the dead. Right. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's been a bit of an evolution in Bart Ehrman's thinking, but certainly Bill Craig used to quote Bart Ehrman as believing all four, four of the basic facts that he would mount a case from. I think uh, Ehrman may, may have wobbled on one or more of those more recently. But, but certainly, I mean, when guys like Craig sort of say, these are generally accepted within the historical guild, um, the comeback that you get from guys like Peter Atkins is, oh, well, of course, New Testament scholars would think that because they're all blind faith Bible believing Christians who desperately want it to be true <laughs> and that's just not, if you know anything about the history of New Testament studies and that's, this, this is not the case and you know that guys like Craig and, and Habermas and so on are referring to very liberal atheist New Testament scholars like Gerd Ludman um, like the folks in the Jesus seminar <laughs> who are really at that fringe end of New Testament scholarship who nevertheless, as you say, will accept these basic facts whilst thinking that the New Testament is generally unreliable and that miracles don't happen and that there isn't a God and so on. But yeah, of course Jesus was killed by crucifixion. Of course he was buried. Of course the tomb was found empty, etc. Um, so again, Jew- Jewish New Testament scholar, Yusuf Hermes, in his book on the resurrection, uh, he says, the idea of the resurrection of the dead was a bit of a latecomer in Jewish thought, occupied a small area of the religious canvas of the Judaism of Jesus' day, when the Sadducees, who were in charge of the temple, didn't believe in resurrection. The New Testament completely altered the vista, changed the perspective, with the individual resurrection of one Jew, Jesus, predominating the, the, the view. Set in time and space, integrated into history, the situation is profoundly perplexing, and the historian must, must come to grips with this puzzle. But the new atheist response is, what puzzle? There isn't a puzzle. Um, so I'm going to skip through uh, some of this. Again, Bart, Bart Ehrman, in a debate with Bill Craig, says, well, of course it, it makes sense to Bill to believe in the resurrection because he believes in God. You know, but I don't, so, so, it, so it doesn't. But, well, again, as I said at the beginning, you don't have to presuppose theism if you presuppose agnosticism, if you're just open to the possibility of there being a God, since if there were a God, he could do miracles, you have to be at least open to the possibility of miracles. And as John Ehrman says, not Bart Ehrman, but John Ehrman, who did the, the critic of Hume's philosophy on miracles, said, really a, a, a good theory of knowledge needs to be open to being convinced by evidence at some point. Otherwise, you are just being obscurantist. You know, the new atheists are, are obscurantist uh, on the matter. Um, so you can use, again, remember our criteria of authenticity uh, back to our New Testament letters. You know, Galatians, 16 years post-crucifixion, talking about being crucified with Christ uh, as a Christian. Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. 16 years after um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians 54 
But this is one of those areas where, as J.P. Morland and others pointed out earlier, you get these creedal passages that give us earlier insights. So very famously, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9, Paul quotes to the Corinthian church this creedal material that he'd had handed on to him and that he reminds them he had handed on to them on his previous visit earlier. And we can date this back through other references and so on. And we can get the, the bits that are Paul in yellow and the creedal material in, in white here. You get Jesus as he's crucified in 33, although this is 54, he's reiterating teaching he passed on to them in 50, that's 17 years post-crucifixion. And again, the general scholarly guild view is that Paul probably received that creedal material in Jerusalem from Peter and James about AD 37. He might even have received it from the Damascus Christians, of course, right after his conversion. Um, most would say AD 37, by which time it had already been formulated into a creedal, into a creedal form that they could give him, that he would then pass on to the, the Corinthians. And here, you know, again, atheist Gerd Ludemann, the elements in the tradition from the Corinthians' creed are to be dated no later than three years after the death of Jesus. Atheist Michael Gulder goes back to what Paul was taught when he was converted a couple of years after the crucifixion. Done. He was a Christian, but a famous Christian New Testament scholar states it within months of Jesus' death. The oldest phase of all, Albert Wilkins, um, Pinchus Lapide, who was a Jewish scholar, said that the, the creed could be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses because it's formulated by the Jewish church within months, years of the events. Yes, sir? Um, when you're talking about just a couple of years after the crucifixion, uh, I just have to mind that uh, I think it's recognized that the, the, the dating of the birth of Jesus uh, is considered not to be year zero mm -hmm. uh, because of Quirinius and all these uh, yeah. processes, but uh, about the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. So it's established that that's year 33. There, there are, about the dating of the, the crucifixion, there are two dates that are debated over. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's either AD 30 or 33. Um, that would um, fit a lot of the criteria we have and because they fit a lot of the criteria, at least, that's why they're debated over. I myself think 33, um, but other people would say 30. Um, on the, the dating of Jesus' birth, yes, I mean, A, the medieval monk who worked out the calendar change um, didn't, count the years, didn't count the year zero. <laughs> there isn't a year zero in the, in the, in the calendar. And also... Uh, the information seems to be that uh, Herod died in 4 BC and we know Herod died after the birth of Jesus so Jesus must have been born before Herod died in 4 BC uh, I think most scholars would plump for something like 5 or 6 BC um, Isn't there a reference in the Bible in the New Testament to the age of Jesus? Uh, yeah there are some but they're fairly, fairly vague references um, so they're, 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 you know, uh, they're, they're sort of Jesus was about this age or um, the Pharisees saying to him you know you're talking about this but you're not yet 50 <laughs> kind of thing so I, I think the internal information that we have um, can be made to square with um, those external reference points um, 
Yeah, and of course, we were talking about Paul quoting this, but Paul himself claims to be an eyewitness <laughs> of this. And we have it not only from Luke saying, Paul said this and was an eyewitness, but from Paul himself saying, in several, several different places, uh, telling uh, slightly different variations on, on the story, as they did in the ancient world. Um, Anthony Flew, as an, as an atheist, admitted the evidence of Paul is important and strong because he'd been an opponent. I think this has to be accepted as one of the most powerful bits of evidence that there is, which is interesting. So, Lawrence Krauss's uh, assertion that the earliest reports of Jesus' resurrection, he says, come from decades or hundreds of years after the fact, says Lawrence Krauss, is just demonstrably wrong. Demonstrably wrong. Um, even very liberal atheist New Testament scholars know what they're talking about, will say the earliest information we have about Jesus' resurrection come from a couple of years, if not months, after the crucifixion. Um, you can piece together, and in talking about multiple independent sources of information, it's interesting to, to line up here um, four sources, so you've got the 1 Corinthians 15 creed Mark, the earliest gospel and if you take the pre-Mark and Passion source idea you've perhaps got a narrative that goes back to about AD 37 and Acts here, I've got Peter's Pentecost sermon from AD 33 and the sermon of Paul in uh, Antioch in about 45 now of course Acts itself wasn't published until later than that, but uh, James D. Dunn comments, Luke has sought out much earlier material as in, incorporated it into the, the formalised expressions he attributes to Peter, Stephen, Paul, etc. And Bart Ehrman concurs, the speeches in Acts are particularly notable because they are in many instances based on oral traditions. These speeches incorporate materials from the traditions about Jesus that existed long before Luke put pen to papyrus. Um, so when Luke is quoting Peter's sermon from Acts, and he's told us at the beginning, I did my research and went to the sources, and we know he'd been to Jerusalem and so on. He spent time there. He's had the opportunity. <laughs> it's probable that he's summarizing what the, you know, those on the ground at the time, uh, within a generation of, of it happening, are passing on as the oral tradition here. Uh, so you've got multiple early independent sources all saying the same general structure about Jesus dying, being buried, being raised, appearing. Um, so you know, Craig pointing out about Paul's personal acquaintance with a lot of the people involved that he uh, that you can quote there um, guarantees that the appearances occurred. You've got multiple sources for the resurrection appearances. Um, even bracketing off the, the added ending of Mark, before the added ending of Mark, you've clearly got an indication that a group appearance is believed to have happened. Because the angel says, you know, go on ahead of you, he will appear to the disciples. Um, it's interesting to see Jesus was reportedly seen on at least, at least ten different occasions. In eight of those occasions, it's also reported that people heard and or talked with had a conversation with Jesus. On at least two occasions, people touched Jesus, we're told. 
at least seven reports were kept, uh, concerned appearances to groups of people. And we've got multiple independent sources for at least two individual and three group appearances of the resurrected Christ. Uh, and it's some of that detail that, that makes the sort of, oh, they were just having a hallucination kind of way of explaining it away. Um, highly, highly implausible. It, it, I think it ends up really being a utterly unique, miraculous kind of of hallucination, <laughs> um, which really uh, meets uh, David Hume's rule for <laughs> believing in miracles. So, um, multiple independent attestation, and crucifixion, of course, is embarrassing. Back to our Aximenos uh, graffiti uh, here. Uh, crucifixion was such a scandalous way to die. It's absurd to suppose that any group would pretend that their leader had been crucified. Uh, Bart Ehrman makes the same point. Same for the, for the empty tomb. The fact that you've got evidence from female witnesses, notes Giza Vimes, who had no, no standing in male-dominated Jewish society. If the tomb story had simply been manufactured by a primitive church to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection one would have expected a uniform and foolproof account attributed to patently reliable witnesses, i.e. men, in the culture. They would have said men. Um, a note in the 1 Corinthians 15 creed, no women are mentioned. Because they're trying to make it as plausible as possible in this very cultural, culturally difficult situation for them. But the gospel writers, who are trying to give a, a more fulsome account of what happened have to sort of embarrassingly admit yeah, yeah, it, it was and here's a picture from the uh, Dura Europos house church of some women going to discover the empty tomb but it was women rather than men who were the chief witnesses to the empty tomb and indeed the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus were women independently attested by Matthew and John and embarrassingly admitted so the kind of four basic historical facts that undergird arguments to the resurrection can be established by multiple early independent embarrassing and eyewitness sources so again you're pulsing multiple of these historical criteria and thus those facts are indeed part and parcel of the scholarly consensus and that's not because the scholarly guild is massively biased towards the Christian viewpoint. <laughs> um, and interestingly today, it, it, you know, back in the 19th century, people would advance alternative sort of naturalistic ways of explaining away the miracles. You know, the, Jesus inspired the crowd to share their packed lunches and thus the feeding of the 5,000 and we should all share our food with each other. And that's what you get out of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, <laughs> you know, but they would put forward, oh yes, you know, Jesus, you know, he didn't really die on the cross, and he revived in the cool of the tomb. So Jesus revived somehow in the cool of the tomb, rather than the the freezing cool of the tomb overnight was the last nail in the coffin of the almost dead Jesus. Uh, you know, why do they go that way? And then somehow he managed to um, get out of the tomb, uh, avoid the guard, and you can establish that, I think, but you don't use it in the minimal facts case. Um, stagger up to the disciples, you know, dripping blood from his, his still fresh wounds, and say, guys, <coughs> I've been gloriously resurrected as the Lord of life. 
get me to a hospital? You know, it's just... <laughs> and so one critic would put forward a, a, you know, a, a naturalistic explanation, and the other critics, in order to you know, get their academic publication rate to keep that up, you know all about this, uh, would publish a critique of that and say, no, no, that's patently stupid. Here's my naturalistic uh, thesis, or all the way down to more present-day things like um, you know, Jesus was the result of eating magic mushrooms or whatever from the 1970s views. Or, it's like, nowadays, the Guild will generally accept the basic historical facts that I've mentioned and say, we don't know what happened. Because they're back to those criteria of demarcation. They're back to saying, well, because we know there's no God, a miracle can't have happened. I don't know what did happen, but it can't have been a miracle. Or, well, even if, you know, if miracles are possible, we can't ever know that one's happened. So we just don't know what happened to Jesus. We know that people thought they saw him alive, but that's all we can say. Or, that's all we can say because I'm a historian, and when I'm doing history, I'm not allowed to go outside of the naturalistic box. So I'm not saying that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I'm just saying nothing about it. Because I'm doing history. Um, And that's where they are. Giza Vermez, in his book on the resurrection... He admits the basic historical facts. He spends a chapter looking at six alternative theories of what happened that are not Jesus rose from the dead. And at the end of that chapter, he says, all in all, none of these six suggested theories stands up to stringent scrutiny. And then the book finishes. He's Jewish. <laughs> so, again, it's... it's it's not about the paucity of evidence. It's about the, the presuppositions that you bring to your willingness to look at, to engage with, to follow the evidence to certain conclusions. Anthony Flew. I don't think it's possible to offer any satisfactory naturalist account of what happened. That really represents the sort of majority view these days on, on that matter. But I'll leave you with this thought from, uh, from Rob Bowman and the um, Alex Aminos Graffito. He says, it would never have occurred to anyone in the first century to invent a story about a crucified man as the divine saviour and king of the world. Something extreme and dramatic must have happened to lead people, especially such people in you know, such a time, to accept such an idea. Something like he's rising from the dead. <laughs> That would certainly fit the bill. And I would argue that the best explanation of those basic historical facts in terms of, again, kind of standard criteria of explanation, like scope of explanation, encompassing as much data as possible, um, simplicity of explanation, power of explanation, ability to make it probable that we would find the evidence we do indeed find and so on, uh, would lead us, if we follow the evidence... Uh, to uh, at least if we're following that in, in, in the context of the life of Christ at least if we're open to miracles happening if we don't rule off discussion or engagement with it from the table from the get go then uh, we are uh, led to uh, the Christian historic view of these matters
Marvellous. I'm finishing on time. This is good. Any, any last uh, questions in our last ten minutes before we then have to fill out some, some forms and stumble out and search for some more coffee? Yeah. I have a question regarding uh, the gospel stories. Uh, I've read somewhere, or I think heard somewhere, that the autographs might have been written in Aramaic, not in Greek. Right, yeah. Have you that yeah, there's particularly, a, this is a discussion about what language the autographs of the Gospels were, were written in. There's particularly a discussion about, about Matthew's Gospel, I think, because some of the early church fathers, um, in reporting the, the formation of the canon, talk about, um, I, think, I think it's Matthew, talk about him recording uh, things um, in Aramaic or in the style of the Hebrews, in the Hebrew language or in the Hebrew style there are debates over exactly what the New Testament fathers say about it even uh, and one hypothesis that fits the circumstantial evidence and I'm not quite fond of but I, you know, I wouldn't sort of nail this to the mast um, is the idea that I think Paul Barnett and others put forward that maybe what they're thinking of there is, is Q and that Q was written by Matthew who as a tax collector would have been educated for example in writing shorthand um, who was on the ground at the time and Q consists mainly of, of preaching stories, parables and teaching stories from Jesus um, so that on the ground as a disciple of Jesus maybe Matthew was taking notes <laughs> and then later on drew on his notes in writing up his full-fledged gospel and that those notes were then also used elsewhere. And that would, that would account for the early church father information about Matthew originally being written in, in Hebrew. And following up on that question, uh, there is a trend of uh, uh, reading the gospels and translating it back into Hebrew or Aramaic mm-hmm. instead of uh, do scholarly work on, on the original or on Greek. Mm. Um, uh, it, do you see a problem with that, or is that beneficial? Yeah, well, it, it, I don't know enough about it to say how much of a science and how much of an art, as it were, that it, that process is. But I can see, and we, we've talked a little bit a, about it, where you, you talk about some of those sort of creedal passages where it, it's, you know, because I'm not a languages expert, I'm told it translates particularly easily back into Aramaic. And when you do that, you can apparently find sort of Hebrew poetic forms. So um, if you know about Hebrew poetry, you you will typically find in in Hebrew poetry, you get sort of couplets that repeat a a point. Um, I think that's quite a useful way to think of, say, something like the Lord's Prayer. Um, quite a lot of the are, are hammering home a point from a sort of different um, metaphor or a different angle um, uh, give us today our daily bread forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us now if you take that as Hebraic poetry you could take that as two different ways of saying give us what we really fundamentally need God what is it we really fundamentally need God to give us forgiveness for our sins um, so maybe it's things like that um, in these other passages um, that 
a sort of way of doing hymn writing, for example, that is typically Hebrew and not typically Greek when you translate it, it back into what would seem to be the obvious sort of Greek Aramaic conversion of it. Um, so I think there might be some use to it, but I'm, I'm not a languages expert, so I'm sure there's probably one here at the conference. You can track them down and pose that question to them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, controversial thing. I uh, visited just a few days ago the Shroud of Turin. Mm. When it comes to scientific, and also met with uh, Bruno Berbers, Professor Bruno Berbers, who's the leader of the Institute for uh, Synology or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. What is your take on that? I mean, he yeah. works scientifically mm. on the Shroud, not by faith, but scientifically. Yeah. And uh, what they have come up with of scientific. I mean, scientific proofs mm, mm. is quite astounding. Mm. And if that really is a proof of, I mean, the print, there's mm, mm. no way that they can explain it or they can redo it scientifically mm. today. And uh, yeah. that could be an interesting way yeah, of yeah. talking about resurrection. Yeah, and, and I'd be warmer towards that. I think people can be warmer towards that again today than, than we have been for a while. Um, I'd always been intrigued about it, and I read sort of Gary Habermas's book from the back in the 70s on it, for example. Um, but of course, um, when there seemed to be, you know, a massive amount of his historical and sort of data from the plant samples on it and the soil and the everything, pointing to a first-century date and the fact that it's got this strange negative image before the invention of photography and it's 3D information in it and. You know, that's really weird. But, of course, during the 1980s, there was this big thing about carbon dating it and saying, no, three, you know, three independent labs have carbon dated it and said it's a medieval forgery. But that, to me, was always dodgy in principle because you, that was an outrider to all of the other data pointed towards the first century date. And suddenly you have this saying, no, it's medieval. So it didn't fit the rest of the data. Um, and more recently, you have had um, peer-reviewed scientific publications calling into question the legitimacy of the, of the carbon dating and saying, I, I think uh, one of the leading things is that the, the sample that was tested was taken from a particular bit of the, the, the Turin Shroud that had been rewoven uh, later on in medieval times to, to patch it up and that they had been warned against taking samples from there and the protocol was to take it from several different places on the Shroud, but because the Roman Catholic Church didn't want scientists burning up large chunks of the Turin Shroud, <laughs> for obvious reasons, um, they all took it from the same place, and that place has certainly been called into question uh, now. There are arguments over whether or not enough more modern weave would be interspersed with the old material to throw the date off by that much, but there are also arguments about possibility of what happened to the shroud when the, if the resurrection happened could have thrown it off as well. So I would say, yeah, there's been more peer-reviewed publication calling into question those carbon dating. And I've also seen um, reports that there are uh, other independent methods of, of dating um, using sort of lasers and things that I don't quite understand. But there have been other, a variety of sort of dating methods used on the shroud now uh, that more recently have pointed towards the first century date. Uh, uh, as well, and so we're, we're, you know, I would encourage people to look into the into the peer-reviewed publicly available literature uh, on it. Necessarily than believing everything you find on every website 
out there. I think some of the claims are perhaps a little overblown on the positive side. But yeah, I, th I think we can um, look at the Shroud of Turin with a lot more uh, interest today. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting question. But um, I think most people still have in the back of their minds that, you know, that's all been debunked and everything. And it might be quite a long up uphill kind of route to getting at resurrection um, in comparison to... Yeah. But, but, yeah. But, I mean, and the statistical... If you, I mean, Habermas in his books does a good job of looking at the specifics of the biblical reports about what happened to Jesus that is not usual of crucifixion victims and doing a sort of back-of-the-envelope calculation of, given that the image on the shroud seems to reflect all of those unusual aspects like the crown of thorns and so on, um, that the statistical likelihood of it being some other guy who just happened to be crucified in the same way, specifically, is pretty long odds. So it's pretty good odds that if it is genuine, it is genuinely the, the burial shroud of Christ. Yeah. Grand. Well, thank you so much, everyone, um, for staying awake, asking uh, wonderful questions, and uh, kicking off uh, the conference. May you have a, a good one. Thank you. Thank you.